Morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us once a week. For an hour, I sit down with one of the key members of the Hillsdale College faculty and staff, usually Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. And we are lucky that it is indeed Dr. Arn in the house today. Tomorrow's my annual Groundhog's Day show, so he's agreed to come in early and surprise all of our Thursday people with this. And it's uh, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. All of our previous conversations are collected at Hillsdale, uh, HughForHillsdale.com. You can subscribe to Imprimus, the free speech digest at Hillsdale.edu. And you can indeed see all the Constitution courses, the Churchill courses, the course on progressivism. It's all at Hillsdale.edu. But today we're going to talk about the State of the Union, and we're going to talk about the Constitution. Dr. Ron, good morning, and thank you for coming in a day early. Uh, good morning. Yeah, we're going to shock the Thursday people. Today. And they're all sleeping and they're waking up and they're going to hear some cons- high-end constitutional talk. I want to begin with this. We are in the middle of Memogate, whether or not the Congress of the United States ought to supervise and release its findings concerning the FBI. I want to remind people, Congress is Article 1. They authorize the existence of the FBI. They fund it every year. They detail exactly how it spends its money. The FBI objects that it could hurt the relationship between the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and the FBI if this memo comes out. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court is a creation of Congress. The fact that it operates with the FBI is as a result of a statute that Congress wrote. Dr. Arndt, we have basic constitutional illiteracy in the media's coverage of this story. Well, put it in uh, school terms, right? So we've got two people who operate mostly in in private accused of doing a bad thing, and they're saying if you release it, it'll hurt the relations between the two of us. That that does not make a lot of sense. It doesn't, no. I mean, it. Uh, let's say that uh, there was a list of agents of the United States undercover, and they were at risk, right? Well, they're not, you know. I mean, in other words, they, I, what, what this memo is supposed to say, and I guess we're going to see it, you know, maybe today, but what it's supposed to say is that they went, the FBI went to this foreign intelligence court and based an application to, over, to wiretap and surveil members of a presidential political campaign on the basis of a dossier. And this dossier has its origin in certain political actors, some on both the left and the right, in the United States that, that was that stems from opposition research, right? right? So they are taking political opposition research, and they are turning that into surveillance of a political campaign. That's a questionable thing. And, and why not tell the people about it? Now, uh, what's interesting is CNN is reporting at this hour that the FBI agent at the center of the storm, Peter Stroke, played a key role in the controversial decision that upended Hillary Clinton's campaign just days before the election. The letter to Congress by then-FBI Director James Comey announcing the Bureau was investigating newly discovered Clinton emails. Uh, it's a new revelation that Stroke, who was very anti-Trump, wrote the letter opening it. And so it's being suggested in the media, how could it possibly be that he's a bad guy if he wrote this? In fact, we don't we don't know anything here about how someone covers their tracks if they think they're going to. We don't know a thing, Larry Arnn, but all the people who applaud the post, the movie out right now and the release of the Pentagon Papers are all of a sudden have switched entirely to the non-disclosure side of the aisle. What does that tell you? Yeah, if well, what it tells you is 
if you've got people who prosecute Americans and who handle secrets, and they're mucking around in political campaigns, which James Comey did, obviously, during the political campaign as head of the FBI, then sunlight is an excellent solution, isn't it? And that, so I don't, I don't understand not releasing. And I think that there should be more released, right? In other words, this, this memo, when we see it, is going to raise questions. I think that those questions should be answered. Well, the, um, the interesting thing about the text messages between uh, the agent as head of counterintelligence or deputy head of counterintelligence and uh, the lawyer who is his mistress is that they were being sent on um, in a fashion that leads me to believe that they were compromised by foreign intelligence agencies as well. If you know who the head of counterintelligence is, you're going to do everything in the world you can to surveil them. And if you're sending text messages like this, Chances are they're going to get surveilled. Almost everything is compromised, Larry. Arne. Do you operate on that on that assumption? By the way, when you send emails, yeah. Well, our our secret keeping rule at Hillsdale College is try not to have any secrets. That's a good. That's <laughs> exactly the best way to go about it. All right, let's go to the State of the Union. Your general observation of how it went. Uh, well, I think it was awesome. I think it was it was highly intelligent from the political point of view. And I think it was inspiring. Uh, I like to compare states of the Union message messages over time. And the modern ones are very different from the old ones because the government does way too much. That's why those speeches are told so long. So I don't like that about it. But it's, uh, if, you, if you look at the string of them, you know, since the bureaucratic state was born, that changes American politics in fundamental ways, the presidents have been... Nixon through Trump. And, uh, and Trump's speech is like Reagan's speech and very unlike uh, Clinton's and Obama's speeches. Uh, different, they, all of the speeches have something in common. Uh, they all salute the American people. Uh, they all uh, work for the American people, they say. They all want more jobs. They all want national defense. They're all like that. But the difference is in how do you go about it? And in Trump's speech, the American people are brave, active. They have compassion in their souls and steel in their spine. And when they do things, they do them. It's their virtue. And if you look at Obama's first inaugural address, which was, they're, they're saying in the papers this morning, was watched by more people than Trump's first one. First State of the Union, not inaugural yeah. First State yeah, of the Union. Yeah, sorry, First State of the Union. If you look at that, the people are struggling but resolute and resilient. They endure. And then he names a bunch of achievements they've had. And those are all achievements that are triggered by something the government did for them. And, uh, and so it's a different, you know... Clinton's speech is my favorite of all the ones that I don't like, because it starts out with uh, this amazing sentence. Um, We meet here in the bleak of winter, but by the what we say and the faces we show the world, we can force the spring. So, you know, it's nature being overcome by what? Policy. So Trump's thing is American people have a nature, and if you let them live under laws and earn and take care of themselves, they will, and all of their dignity, he says over and over, comes from that activity. Yeah. And that's very like Reagan's first inaugural, yeah. first say the Union message. Yeah. 
And, and and let's get to the specifics now. Here is the president talking about the tragic toll of um, violent people in the country without permission, illegal aliens. Cut number one. Many of these gang members took advantage of glaring loopholes in our laws <coughs> to enter the country as illegal, unaccompanied, alien minors and wound up in Kayla and Nisa's high school. Evelyn, Elizabeth, Freddie, and Robert, tonight everyone in this chamber is praying for you. Everyone in America is grieving for you. You know, uh, Dr. Ron, this is the one part of the speech I did not like. Uh, because there are 10,000 MS-13 gang members in the United States, but they were talking about legalization of 1.8 million dreamers and confusing. You know, we have problems of scale, Dr. Bennett used to say. Uh, when the numbers get too big, we tend to, to just lose count. 10,000 is such a small percentage of 1.8 million. What was the point of that, do you think? Well, he, he so, you know, the effective thing going on here, the reason this speech is politically brilliant, in my opinion, more than any other reason, is uh, there's a consensus in America about immigration, and that is we don't mind immigration, we don't like illegal immigration. And there's a very large majority that agrees with that, both of those propositions. Why then can't we stop illegal immigration? The claim that that sympathy toward the ones already here makes it racist and cruel to do to build a wall, for example. Well, Trump is, has just sidestepped all that, right? Because he's going to legalize 1.8 million people on condition that they demonstrate, because there'll be a process to become a citizen, on condition that they demonstrate that they're not living like those people in MS-13. That they're not one of the 10,000. That, they're, that, that, that we're going to let 1.8 million people in, but they cannot be one of those 10,000. But he never connected that dot. And when we come back, we'll talk about that. Because, and I also, bringing the parents in was just heartbreaking. And I'm, I'm not sure I could have done that. But we'll talk more about that with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, right after this. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Arn, um, uh, this is really below the level of conversation that we're usually used to. But I have to cover it. Uh, Michael Wolf, who is a discredited gossip columnist, wrote a, a horribly salacious book in which was uh, included an intimation of an extramarital affair between Ambassador Haley and the president, which has been roundly denounced. And I wouldn't I wouldn't shake hands with the guy, but he showed up on Morning Joe this morning and Mika threw him off uh, and they takes to Twitter to trash Mika um, uh, uh, about how they gossip more eagerly off camera. Uh, about who's sleeping with whom uh, and and who the president might be sleeping. I mean, it's our media has just crashed and burned. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm astonished by Michael Wolf, and I'm astonished by the people who print him, and I'm astonished by the people who give him interviews. <laughs> All of that, and that means that's bipartisan astonishment that I just stated there. He's a horrible man. Yeah, well, he, you know, to, to, for money, right, because he, he is explicit that he writes things that he makes up to be outrageous about public affairs and sell copy. That's what he says he does for a living. Yeah, he makes up stuff and he sells it. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, 
I, I, uh, there's a joke that goes around any decent college campus where the literature people will argue that it's harder because you have to create to write fiction, and the history people will argue that it's harder because you have to look it up. And the truth is, at the high level, both are harder, and Aristotle even says maybe poetry is higher than history. But uh, I, I mustn't take sides in that argument. I got both. Anyway, you see, that this, to, to apply this standard that you just make it up to the news, you know, and, and uh, so the truth is probably, I don't know, because, you know, I'm proud to say that four or five months ago, I didn't know who Michael Wolf was. Neither uh, did I. Probably uh, people don't take him seriously. Well, I, 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 the, the Nikki Haley stuff, uh, uh, it, it puts, and, and then the former first lady and secretary of state goes on the Grammys and reads from a book with that allegation in it. Uh, no wonder the Grammys are down 24% year over year. Uh, and I, I asked my law students the other day, did any of you watch the Grammys? They said, no, we don't, we don't even have cable anymore. And I, I believe that the rising generation is developing a complete aversion to the so-called news because they understand it all to be drama. It's not news. Yeah. So they get, I, I think news operate among the young operates mostly through notifications now. Uh, Apple and Google and everybody, all the big ones, they all have news feeds, you know, and if you sign up for your stuff and you have your notifications on, then things will, because it happens to me all the time, and I'm interested in the news, so I don't mind it. But uh, it, so I think that they see the news in snippets too much. And I think in general, by the way, kids don't read enough. And I don't pine that they don't watch news on TV. I hardly ever do it myself. But they should read. Everybody, you know, if you spend 30 minutes in the morning reading the papers, you can just learn a lot. And, uh, and also, if you read three or four, you know, I, I read three or four things. And, and that means that I, when I read a story like last week, we talked, what was it we talked about? Oh, we talked about uh, uh, whether it was well, I'm not recovering it now, but in the Wall Street Journal, it was reported that, oh, I, know, I got it now, officials told Trump that Don McGahn, the White House counsel, would quit if they fired Mueller. Right. And, and the New York Times, both sourced stories, and those are both serious places, right? They said that they were told that McGahn told Trump that. That's two very different things. Yeah. And I'm not accusing either one of them of lying. I think they're both serious, as a matter of fact. I'm just saying, hard to know what goes inside in those places. And you'll be skeptical about drawing conclusions if you read them both. But, but I, do, I do think there's a difference between someone who admits that he's making stuff up. He should not have a place on air. I mean, when we come back, we'll talk about the descent of the media into utter chaos and the President's State of the Union with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale uh, are available at hillsdale.edu in all of our conversations dating back to 2013 at Hugh for com. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue a week early. Uh, day early this week for uh, tomorrow is my annual Groundhog's Day show with Jan Janura, uh, in which we celebrate his ministry, uh, the Wild Adventure uh, dot US. But today I'm celebrating Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale dot edu. 
And uh, I want to advise all of the the young college, uh, would-be college students out there and their parents who think they want to be journalists, that I know there's a great school at Medill. Guy Benson is a graduate there. I know there's a great school at Syracuse. I know there's a great school at Missouri. There's a wonderful graduate school at Columbia. But if I really wanted to learn journalism and I really wanted to learn radio, I would go to Hillsdale because of John Miller and because of Scott Bertram and because of the team around them. You really do teach the craft. And, and the late, great Michael Kelly said, it's not a profession. Journalism is a craft. And there's no one who credentials you as a journalist, like a lawyer or a doctor. It's a craft like woodworking, only it's working in facts, hopefully, as opposed to what Michael Wolf does. But it's in decline, Dr. Arn. That's what I want to talk to you about. I, I really believe when I saw the coverage on Tuesday and Wednesday that I could predict nine out of nine and a half out of 10 responses coming out of anyone's particular mouth about any subject, because it is all a kabuki dance now. Do you agree or disagree with me on that? Uh, I agree. And, uh, you know, so we, we have, uh, I'll add one thing to what you said about our journalism program, and it, it is very excellent. John and Scott are very good. Also, remember, it's in a context. We don't have a journalism major here. You have to major in something. And you also have to take the core curriculum. And that means when you leave here, you will be acquainted with the whole sweep of the Western tradition and how that compares to the rest of the tradition. So that means that you can place things in a context. And that's sadly absent these days. Uh, Charles Kessler and Victor Hansen both wrote great articles, one in the New York Times and one in National Review Online, I think, about the State of the Union message, and both of their articles are rich with knowledge of the past, of the constitutional structure, right? And it makes them interesting. And then there's just one more thing. When you make any work of art, and I mean art, art in the general sense means whatever people make, are you trying to represent something, or are you trying to do something about yourself? And so the great art, uh, the great tradition and peaks of art are all attempts to show nature more vividly and, of course, in a different modality than nature actually exists. So to make a painting, you know, say Turner paints these fabulous sea battles, right? And it's hard to think of anything more in motion than a sea battle where the wind and the ships and the sea are all moving. He can put that on a, in two dimensions on a static canvas, right? It is a vast act of creation, but how do you judge it except is it like the thing? Journalism has the same problem. You know, 800 words or 1,200 words or 1,400 words in the New York Times is not the same thing as the actual meetings in the White House. Can you represent those meetings fairly in the 800 or 1200 or 1400 words. And I think because we have abandoned our idea of truth and nature, I think we have, uh, our journalism has declined toward the direction of Michael Wolf, although he's the extreme. He is the extreme, but he, he is the direction in which we are heading because that which gets rewarded gets repeated. He has sold more books than say I have or you have. And that's because you and I write true things, and true things are a little bit more difficult to write. 
They yeah, require yeah. an attention to fact and detail so that they are not held up to the contempt of our friends, which would embarrass us, right? Or rephrase that. If we were if we were as good at truth-telling as he is at lying, maybe we'd sell more books. Perhaps we would. <laughs> but there is good news on this front, and I, I want to touch on the good news. I just tweeted out uh, during the break that... Uh, Amazon Prime is now running the the movie uh, 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 Ride the Thunder about the true heroes of Vietnam, the Covans, the last American Marines who stood side by side with the Republic of South Vietnam soldiers as the North invaded Contra the peace and the Democrats abandoned uh, the commitments Nixon and Ford had made. And the, and the Republic of, Korea, uh, of Vietnam was lost and, and hundreds of thousands went to the camps. And some Americans fought br- bravely and valiantly. And that's out on Amazon Prime, made by oh. an independent, independent filmmaker. At the same time, our friend Lee Habib, you know Lee. Oh, Lee yeah. has begun, begun ouramericannetwork.org. And the first thing on there is a, an excellent video by Dr. Bill Bennett about the opioid crisis, which killed 64 thousand people last year and and so we are developing new means of communicating but i don't know that we're developing them fast enough against this explosion of uh pov point of view journalism everything is point of view journalism it's not neutral it doesn't even pretend to be neutral anymore larry yeah and if you you know like i did you know that winston churchill got up in the morning and he read about 10 newspapers cover to cover, very fast, and he clipped them with a pair of scissors, and articles were taped in big scrapbooks. And among the things he read was the Daily Worker, you know, the Communist Party paper of Britain. And we know that because we have the scrapbooks, but we also know that because in, in the House of Commons, he will sometimes cite articles from the Daily Worker, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Churchill was not, in fact, a communist, and, and uh, so that's that's the ticket, right? The new, you know, my my opinion is, if you're a normal human being, that is to say, you have a life and you don't just, you know, spend all your time on politics, then you should read the papers every day. My own view is you should read them fast. I I take that view in part because I don't have time to read them any other way. But you should read a bunch of them, yep. and and uh, that's you know a way to go. Like I, you know, I I like. I like, I dislike, I like the New York Times, though, because whatever it does, you know, and sometimes it's silly and awful and just misses huge things, right? Well, we're all like that sometimes. I think they're more commonly like that, but they always make a big effort. And, uh, and, you know, they're skilled. So I would read them. Oh, yeah, I do. And, in fact, what Mm -hmm. people I've told often, my... Uh, prep before the show is the Times of London, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal in that order, mm-hmm. which is an arc from uh, from east to west. And it's also an arc from left to right, because uh, I think the Times of London is actually the left of the New York Times for a variety of reasons. I don't know if you agree with me on that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but but I, I have to keep track. And they're ahead of us on the news circle. And by the time the show begins, I'm fully read in. And I can go to my audio, which is what I want to do with you now, because I want to go back to the State of the Union, play a couple of important clips for your, your commenting. Cut number six, Donald Trump on dreaming. This, in fact, is our new American moment. There has never been a better time to start living the American dream. So to every citizen watching at home tonight, no matter where you've been or where you've come from, this is your time. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, then you can dream anything. 
You can be anything. And together, we can achieve absolutely anything. What do you think, Dr. Arn? Yeah, isn't that powerful? And uh, it's a call to us to live fully human lives as citizens of a free republic. And that's the strongest rhetoric in American history because it is the expression of the principles of the land. Uh, you know, th- there are alternative ways to talk in great regimes of the past and the present that have worth. So the traditional society, the hierarchical society, the holy society, right? Those are, and, and there are instances, important ones in history, when, you know, the Roman Republic was a hierarchical society, but the people at the top of the hierarchy were largely or extensively brave and devoted to the public interest. And you have to recognize that is a great thing. Uh, And so they didn't talk quite the way Donald Trump was talking, right? Now, in my little opinion, the United States is the greatest expression of political justice especially for the modern world where you have to have limited government because you have to have freedom of religion because God goes across national boundaries. And in the ancient world, he didn't. So, so I think America is a peak of all of that. And that passage that you isolated is a fine example of the peak of all of that in America. Now, let me give you my theory, and we, we may have to come back to this after the break. I... I People don't credit Trump with having a strategy, but if you look at his six major speeches, his inaugural address, American Carnage, his first address to Congress on February 28th of last year, in which he made promises, he said he's going to be a promise keeper, and he said Justice Gorsuch is the first, uh, not yet confirmed but nominated, and then he went abroad for three speeches, Saudi Arabia, in which he called on the leaders of Islam to direct uh, their uh, imams to tell people their souls will be fully condemned if they embrace terrorism. Poland, where he did West is Best, and Davos, where he said uh, America first is not America alone. And then he came back and gave this speech. Those six speeches combine to send one big message. This president is not like the last president. In every single particular, I am a repudiation of President Obama. What do you think of my theory? Well, I, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, I will add that his campaign speeches, the big set-piece speeches, several of them are very good. And uh, this was at a time when he was just thought to be just a showboat and a reckless orator. Uh, And I think you're right that, you know, there's a divide in the country, right? We have a great choice before us. I I think my responsibility doing what I do for a living is, you know, as regards public affairs, is to try to elucidate that choice, to make it clear to people what we're choosing between, because both of them have their claims, right? And Obama was a very effective man. And I started out today by comparing with Obama's first, and you're right, they make different points. They have a different way of approaching things because they believe in a different way of living in a different kind of nation. So do you think the antagonism to Trump, which is now so palpable, it is on every station not named Fox, in almost every pundit's lips at every moment, hostility, hatred for Donald Trump, is it because of his style or because of the underlying 
uh, collision of really tectonic plates in American political theory? Well, yeah, it's the it, it's the latter, right? I mean, it's uh, he, he when he what's the swamp that he's going to drain, right? And who's attacking him? So there's a this this phenomenon that is the strongest intellectual force and political force in America, in my opinion, that stems from the universities, and it reaches deeply into government hold, and hold into that journalism. Thought. I'll be right back, and I want to get to that thought and expand that. Fundamental things are afoot, America. That is Dr. Larry Arnn's famous phrase from 2015 as we entered Switzerland and began to observe the presidential campaign of 2015-16, then the election that surprised the world, and now the first year of the presidency of Donald Trump and the first State of the Union. And at that fundamental things being afoot, Dr. Arnn, leads me back to your state of Michigan. There's something going on there in the person of John James. Uh, follow him on Twitter at John James MI, John James Michigan. He is sadly a graduate of the University of Michigan Business School and Roots for the Blue. He is, however, an Army captain with a distinguished record of service. He is a CEO of a business, and he is dynamite. Have you come across him yet? Mm. I've had two long talks with him, one in my office, and... Uh, there's a fire in that guy. And uh, I started, he's very articulate, he's a very principled man, he's a very faithful man, he's fun. Uh, and I started out, you know, because I'm old now and settled in my ways, although, by the way, your audience can tell because I'm so sharp that I did take my relief factor. This morning. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But uh, uh, so I started out thinking, you know, of course this guy can't be elected. He's running because... Uh, he gets his name out, and then he can run for something else. That's, you know, we're used to that. And we should add, he's an African-American from Detroit. We should yeah. add that. People and, haven't seen him. And so, you know, people, people, you know, and my saying that to him, that was kind of an invitation, you know, for him to say, I was, for, for him to know I was interested in him and would like to be helpful to him over time. He was angry when I said that. <laughs> and he just, this is a really fiery guy, right? And he's a very good guy. If you, if you met him, you'd like him. I like him a lot. Well, I, I've had him on the radio, and people are telling me, uh, uh, Justice Young, who was going to run for that seat to go, because Debbie Stabenow is a staple of American politics. I have nothing particularly bad to say about her. I have nothing particularly good to say about her. She's simply a vote for Chuck Schumer. I mean, that's all she has done in yeah. her long years in the Senate. Can you think of anything Debbie Stabenow has done? Well, first of all, we, we, we're going to, this is a primary, so we're going to be, I'm going to be in Switzerland. You are too. Uh, so I'll just say, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to tell the Lincoln joke for people who like that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing they like. I will say that she is a, a, uh, hard worker and she stays close to the people of Michigan. And I think those are her gifts. And, uh, I think it should be very hard to beat, but I don't think it's impossible. Uh, and I think that, uh, James brings something else. Uh, you know, back when, uh, when I first talked to him, I've talked to him twice, as I said, um, he, he, you know, everybody thought Robert Young, who's a great guy and whom I know well, was going to be the nominee. And uh, James said to me, he said, he's not going to stay in. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I, and he likes Young, he doesn't know him very well, but he likes him, and he never didn't say a bad word about him, except he said, I don't think he likes it. And you, I said, why do you say that? And he said, because there's not that much activity there. Well, I, I only mean kind things to Robert Young, but James is, 
he's pushing. He's going to be. He's going to be there. He, he's not going to let it go. He, he yeah. believes it is doable. And uh, of course, if uh, if you take away even ten percent of the African American vote in Michigan, you can beat Debbie Stabenow. But he's got to make that. That's the fundamental things are a foot issue. Detroit is changing rapidly in the good, uh, and and it's reinvigorating. But you've also got an influx of the Google people in Ann Arbor. And, you know, the new information economy people are not particularly bright on anything except their own world, and they're not very bright on government. No. And they, uh, you know, they're... I don't know if it's good for a person not to have much education and get really rich when they're 30. It's very bad for a person. And, uh, you know, very remarkable people. It might be okay, but... And these guys are very remarkable people, but they've they've pieced their knowledge of things together while they go, and that means the signals in the culture, the, like in the media that you were talking about earlier, that's what they know. Too many of them. And uh, but this guy, you know, this guy knows. He's a reader. He uh, he has a habit. You know, if you talk to me, you get books mentioned to you. He writes them down, and uh, you know, he's working through a list. So I, yeah, I think he's a serious guy. We will keep an eye on him. Uh, one more thing about the president's speech, uh, Larry Arndt. He, he used um, uh, an example of a North Korean with crutches who had lost his legs fleeing that country. It's an amazing, it's an amazing yeah. picture. What did you think of that moment? Well, Reagan, the, uh, Trump's State of the Union message was a lot like Reagan's. It was a heart back to them in explicit ways. And uh, ever since Reagan, Reagan was the first one to introduce a hero as an example of a point he wanted to make at the State of the Union message. And now they all do it. Trump did it more than anybody. And uh, that, that story has got to be the most, I, I mean, dramatic. It was, it, it's implausible when you hear there's a man who's been, you know, who's impaired for life walking, and he escaped North Korea on crutches. And he was there. And he was in our, he was in our Congress, being <laughs> applauded by our 535 elected representatives and the president and the vice president. It was, it was incredible. Um, there's hope for North Korea, I guess. I guess there's hope in that. Dr. Larry Arn, there's hope that you'll be back in your regular spot next week, Friday, for the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of them collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, General Lissimo. Thanks to you, uh, Samurai Ben, and, of course, to Dr. Arn and to all of you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with Jan Janeiro on the annual Groundhog Day show here on the Hugh Hewitt Show.